0: Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman. Coming up on Front Row, the president bans Russian oil. Governor Cooper keeps a COVID state of emergency in place. The North Carolina groups step up to help war-torn Ukraine.
1: Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities, and by Funding for the lightning round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.
0: Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokei with the John Locke Foundation, Morgan Jackson, chief political strategist for Governor Roy Cooper, Asher Hildebrand with the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke, and Nelson Dollar, the senior policy advisor at North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, why don't we begin with the president's decision to ban Russian oil?
2: As the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, President Biden announced this week this ban on the importation of oil and natural gas from Russia seemed to be an economic punishment of Vladimir Putin and his tactics there. The U.S. was the first country to take this step. It had been talked about for a little while and it has had an immediate impact on gas prices because last year Russia was responsible for three percent of the crude U.S. oil imports. So it's going to have an impact. It's also a chance for President Biden to blame Putin for the higher gas prices. We also see that the president is talking about the ending of normal trade relations with Russia, which could open the door to more tariffs. Meanwhile, though, critics are also saying if you're talking about gas prices, it's not just Putin. It's also the well, they were uh, already way up. that, that the, they were way up and also pointing to Biden administration policies, including the decision shortly after he took office to block new drilling on federal lands. We're also seeing some criticism. You would expect it from Republicans, but even some criticism from Democrats including the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee who's saying President Biden, as you're looking at Putin and trying to take action against him, you're turning to dictators like Nicolas Maduro and Venezuela to try to get some of the action. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the president deals with this. Morgan, what is the, the president's uh, energy policy?
3: so listen i think the president's been very clear i think he was clear with the american people in the state of the union is that if we were going to stand up and and punish russia for this illegal invasion that it was going to come to a cost to the american people uh, i will tell you that it is near unanimous in congress right now about support for banning uh russian oil mitch talked about the potential of changing the trade status that's obviously going to take another hit But a Wall Street Journal poll this week said 79% of Americans, that's Republicans and Democrats, support the ban and independents, but support the ban on Russian oil, even if it raises their gas prices. Now, guys, this is the business I'm in. You have 79% of people saying they support it when they know it's going to cost them. That's America united behind.
0: But what I'm trying to get to, what is the president's energy policy? And is the new cultural war the debate between fossil fuel and green energy?
4: Oh, it absolutely is. And it was a bad week for Biden. I mean, look, he couldn't get a call return from the Saudis and the Emiratis for a U.S. president. And he's trying to trade one murderous authoritarian in Russia for oil from murderous authoritarians in Venezuela and Iran. The right policy is to reward Americans. The shale revolution here doubled our oil production in the past decade. It kept inflation down. It kept our economy growing. And that was based on secure supplies of low-cost energy. So our policy has got to include oil and natural gas. We have to build the pipelines. We have to cut the, the um, um Uh, the red tape and the regulation. We have to have the investment, the capital to actually do this, retool the uh, uh, refineries and end the Jones Act. You know, we can have renewables, that's great, but the fastest, cheapest, cleanest way to energy independence is United States oil and gas.
0: Is energy independence a national security issue at this point, you think, Asher?
5: I think it is, it's a question of how we get there. And the president has already said uh, that uh, wants domestic production to ramp up. The Secretary of Energy has said that uh, new leases are on the table, much to the chagrin of some progressives. But look, the idea if we open Alaskan forests or the coast of North Carolina to, to new exploration, to, uh, we'll do anything to bring down gas prices today is fairly fanciful. And in the long run, if we really want to rid ourselves of uh, reliance on Russian or Venezuelan energy, then we should be investing in uh, clean energy sources instead of uh, increasing our reliance on fossil fuels. The
4: fastest way is not the clean energy way. The fastest way is the shale revolution. And the whole leases thing, you can have a lease, but if you don't have a permit to drill, it's worthless. Okay, I want to come right back to you, Nelson, and talk about the governor's decision to keep the state of emergency, the COVID state of emergency, in place. Okay, on Thursday, uh, there was a tongue-in-cheek birthday party for, for the two-year-old uh, COVID state of emergency declared in 2019. He long. was invited. I, lit,
3: I lit the candles. <laughs> he was invited.
4: He was invited. Uh, and this followed a letter that uh, 69 Republican members of the House uh, sent to the governor requesting the um, end termination of the state of emergency, and that's Executive Order 116. To, you know, Businesses are back open, school, kids are back in school, mask orders are mostly gone, hospitalizations are down, we have vaccines. There is no emergency by any metric whatsoever. So what people don't know is there are dozens and dozens of executive orders that were built off 116, some that were even coming this month. It's time to get all that regulatory stuff out of the way for the governor to end this in the state and and stop giving things that oh well we're just going to send it off to the local government we need to in the state of emergency statewide at state level and the local level
0: morgan make the governor's case well so first of all it's it's i I
3: love my house republican friends but again much ado about nothing you've got a state of emergency in place that does really two things first of all there are no restrictions on anything there are no mask mandates there are no gathering limits there nobody's freedom is being imposed at at all what, it, what they do, the state of emergency, literally what, what is left in the state of emergency does two things. It provides doctors and pharmacists the ability uh, to treat via, I mean, excuse me, to dispense vaccines as well as treatment and testing. So it, it cuts some red tape to make that happen. It gives flexibility. The second thing it gives flexibility to is healthcare facilities. Listen, we know Nobody will. Everybody wants COVID going away. I want COVID going away. The governor wants COVID going away. But we also have to be smart. We have learned things in this pandemic uh, that tells us that we need to adjust the way that we perform, going that we're going to have these issues moving forward. So there are only two things left. You give health care facilities right. the ability to, to scale up very fast in how they treat patients and how they use mobile hospitals and everything else. And you give pharmacies the ability to, to give vaccines to to individuals. Those are the two things. He,
4: why
5: doesn't he end the executive order? The governor order? has
3: asked the General Assembly to update the law in <laughs> 15 months into the session, they've done nothing.
5: You'd think from some of the rhetoric surrounding this that Governor Cooper wanted to spend so much of his time in office in a state of emergency. I would guarantee there are about a million other things he would rather be working on than hurricanes and a pandemic, but that's the hand he was dealt. And I think if we look around the country at Democratic and Republican governors and how they've handled COVID, we have a lot to be proud of in this state. My family's eager for this to be over, but we also have young kids who are not yet vaccinated. For us, the pandemic is not over, the emergency is still there.
2: Mitch, put this in context. It should not surprise us that this has turned out to be a separation of powers issue because this is basically what you have. The legislative branch is the branch that's supposed to make the laws set most of the policy, the governor carries it out. The governor has liked the fact that having an emergency in place gives him a lot more of the authority of what to do rather than relying on laws that are passed by the General Assembly. That's why the House uh, wants to see him, the House Republicans want to see him get rid of the emergency and the governor is saying, well, no, I'm not going to
4: do it at this point. Let's wrap this up in about 20 seconds, my friend. Well, you have dozens and dozens and dozens, you can look on the website, of executive orders that are based on the emergency. The governor could very easily get rid of the state of emergency, get rid of all those uh, extra um, uh, executive orders, and then if there are things that need to be done at the state level uh, to address some of the issues that Morgan was talking about, do one very clean order, and move forward with the current process that's in place.
0: Okay, I want to move on and talk to Asher about North Carolina groups that are really stepping up to
5: help uh, the folks, the refugees in Ukraine. That's right, Mark, and you wouldn't necessarily know it listening to some of our politicians and pundits, but one of the real remarkable, and I think maybe unexpected things about this uh, Russian invasion, of Ukraine has been the unifying effect that it's had on Americans. According to recent polling, three out of four Americans believe the Russian invasion was unjustified. 68%, including 66% of Republicans, blame Vladimir Putin for the conflict. Even former President Trump is now calling it a crime against humanity. And in North Carolina and around the country, we've seen this outpouring of support from spontaneous gatherings to uh, street demonstrations, to the ubiquitous blue and yellow flags and stand with Ukraine hashtags in your Twitter feed. That's also been true of charitable organizations. Here in North Carolina, we've got groups like Samaritan's Purse out of Boone, which has a mobile field hospital uh, in Poland. Uh, feed the Hunger, a Burlington-based nonprofit, has been raising money to feed children to space by the conflict. Uh, the Ukrainian communities in Charlotte and elsewhere are raising money. And so if you're watching these heart-wrenching images and wondering what you can do, there are a lot of good causes right here we can give to. One final caveat. This week, the Secretary of State, uh, Elaine Marshall, circulated a press release saying, uh, we appreciate your generosity, but just be be smart about how you're giving. There are a lot of scam artists out there, so if you go to websites like Charity Navigator, some of the other sites out there, before you give, just make sure that money's actually going to children and families in need and not to some scam artist. Mitch? Yeah, based on that last comment, that's one of the things that struck
2: me is if you look at places that have been the most likely to scam North Carolinians over the years, uh, things that involve Russia and Ukraine have both been near the top of the list. So people really need to be careful. But it has been great to see the outpouring of support. And I think we've been talking about some of the areas of unity. It's nice to see that people have basically come around almost unanimously to the idea that Vladimir Putin is a murderous thug. A lot of people have known that for he's decades. He's a criminal, you think? Yeah, I, I'm certain that he is, not even just for this. If you go back to what he did in Chechnya years ago. These are things that Vladimir Putin has done. People, I think, are finally getting to the to the realization that this is a bad actor. And as long as he's going to be in power in Russia, we're going to have to watch out for him. Morgan, what's the uh, governor said about this?
3: The governor's done a lot of things. He's talked a lot about United you Kingdom with Ukraine. He's talked about help sending supplies, talking about accepting refugees that are coming. Uh, there are millions of refugees that are going to be coming out of Ukraine. It's a very tragic. four million. It's a tragic situation. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to say both of my colleagues here, I, I agree with a lot of what they said. I mean, I think the thing that heartens me the most, we are, let's be clear, we are a war-weary nation after 20 years of Afghanistan. We are. People do not and want Iraq. troops. And Iraq. People do not want troops over there. But the fact that they not only are doing things like flying the flag and and tweeting about it, but people are giving money. Uh, I've seen some incredible things. Airbnb is a great example of somebody who is pushing people to rent, Airbnbs in Ukraine and obviously don't go that gives money directly to the families that are hosting these houses and doing things I mean you see a lot of things like that, but I think both of their points about be careful There are a lot. There are just as many scammers as there are legitimate charities Make sure you're doing the right thing that the money's actually going to the people that need it But it is it is very heartening to see the unity
0: Nelson, how would you characterize the
4: the president's response to the invasion of Ukraine? Well, I I think it it lacks a lot. You know, one thing I would want to mention just in terms of what's going on in North Carolina real quick. Speaker Moore and 75 members of the House sponsored a resolution in support of the Ukrainian people calling on the federal government to give all of their support possible Dale and Fall assistance. has been
0: involved in saying some things about the pension fund too, right? Well,
4: he has, uh, We and, and that may be Treasure. something that's taken up in the short session and also asking that, you know, that the Congress uh, amend the foreign uh, Sovereign Immunities Act, so that you could take you know Russian Russian nationals into U.S. court. That uh, that was adopted obviously unanimously in the um, in the House this week. That resolution. But here is the tragic uh, reality okay. in the West. The West is willing to fight Russia to the very last Ukrainian. And had the West been united at the start, applied sanctions early, demonstrated military resolve, exercised diplomatic flexibility, we could have potentially created a workable solution uh, for Eastern Europe. Uh, before the war right. started. Now things are looking like 1914, and I think that Biden is going to be tied up in this for the balance of his presidency. we got to
0: move because I want to talk to Morgan about his favorite uh, topic, redistricting, uh, and the
3: U.S. Supreme Court ruling. You know, I, I, our wonderful Republican friends in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, this past week made a ruling of uh, the GOP law and a real setback to GOP lawmakers. Uh, Republicans here in the General Assembly had asked the United States Supreme Court to throw out a map that was imposed on them by a three-judge panel of Superior Court judges. To, and the U.S. Supreme Court declined today. So it declined last week, which means the maps that were imposed by the judges will be the maps uh, for, for 2022. Now, to remind folks on how all this happened is, first of all, you had a, legisl- a congressional map passed by the legislature that was ruled unconstitutional by the North Carolina Supreme Court. They said, legislature, you have another chance to do it, uh, a redo. They come back, the legislature came back again, and a three-judge panel, and I think this is really important to note, made up of two Republicans and one Democrat. Great points. Throughout the map and said, throughout the second map and said, it's, it, it, it's, it's unconstitutional.
4: But they had to do that based on the state two Supreme Court's Repu- ruling.
3: Let me finish, Nelson. <laughs> uh, so you, you'll have <laughs> you'll your time shit. in a minute. So two Republicans and one Democrat, okay? And they ended up with a map. North Carolina is a 50-50 state. And what Nelson and his friends at okay. General Assembly had was an 11-3 to 3 Republican map. These judges imposed a 7 to 7 map that is more fair, more representative of North Carolina.
4: No, so you have the floor. Look, we did have four U.S. Supreme Court justices that agreed with our argument uh, based, on, based okay. on the constitutional power of the state legislatures to select presidential electors and the manner in which members of Congress uh, are elected, that that's vested in the legislature, not courts. Uh, but look, this is not about fairness. This is about power politics. Uh, It's about Democrats being able to maximize the number of seats. You saw this in Illinois, New Jersey, New York, Maryland, now North Carolina. Here's what the irony is of this. The the second map that Republicans produced was really the most competitive map in the country. And it's very unfortunate that that got overturned because, you know, Democrats are going to pick up two guaranteed seats, but Republicans are going to have the opportunity to redistrict congressional maps next year.
0: Are judges now, the, I've said this before, but are they the power players in this state now? Are they power brokers?
2: They certainly are to some extent when they try to be rather than just uh, interpreting the law as it's written. But I think uh, Nelson's point is very important in the sense that had the, the three-judge panel at the Superior Court level upheld that congressional map, what we would have seen is a good year for Republicans this year because it's shaping up to be. But it was a map that had Maybe. four had four very competitive seats every election cycle. So in a really good year for Democrats, there would be an 8-6 Democratic majority within that delegation. I think they're forfeiting that by saying, we're going to have this map for this cycle, but then the Republican General Assembly will
5: draw it again next time. Asher, jump in here. I've been accused of being a glass half-empty person on this issue, and so I'm going to start uh, by saying it's a tremendous relief, from my perspective, that this that the Supreme Court did not. That's right. That the Supreme Court did not uh, uh, take the bait on this appeal, and that as a result, the map that North Carolinians will be voting in in 2022 is probably the fairest congressional map uh, in our state's history, just on partisan basis. Now. Uh, Nelson's point, uh, I I actually want to want to highlight the fact that four justices on the Supreme Court did buy this argument that only the state legislature has power over this and other voting issues. That's actually something I think should terrify a lot of us.
0: Okay, we got to move on. I want to go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch.
2: It's been nearly two years since the Cooper administration used an abatement order to shut down a speedway in Alamance County called the Ace Speedway. It was really only shut down for a few months, but the legal wrangling over this has continued. And the case actually got to the North Carolina Court of Appeals this week. Uh, The, 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 the. People who are representing the speedway are urging the judges on the three-judge panel of the appeals court to let this suit continue. They're saying that by shutting down the speedway, the government was uh, denying people the fruits of their own labor, which is something that's part of our state constitution. They're also, and this is interesting, alleging that there was selective enforcement, that as this speedway was being shut down, some other racetracks were also operating, but that Governor Cooper went out of his way to contact the Alamance County Sheriff and say, Said, are you gonna shut those guys down? Because the owner of the Speedway had been criticizing the governor and his COVID policies.
3: Morgan. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna talk about something else, maybe. Uh, it is So a really cool thing happened this past week. So for, for, for folks who love history, Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Polar Explorer's Endurance that sank over a hundred years ago off the Antarctic coast was found this week in 10,000 feet deep uh, Antarctic waters. It was the, the amazing preservation of this because there's no light. It's so cold. There's very little life down there. It's just incredible uh, for history buffs. For folks who don't know about Shackleton, here's a guy who was trying to be the first person to cross Antarctica via the South Pole. Again, a hundred years ago, his ship got crushed in ice, and this he and his crew in an amazing feat. Got in their lifeboats and traveled 800 miles in probably the most uh, amazing feat of survival that we've ever seen uh, and, and battled treacherous waters, ice, freezing well below right. freezing temperatures. But for his ship to have endured this entire time being the endurance and the endurance, it was just an incredible story.
5: Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Go ahead, my friend. Awfully hard to top that. Uh, but yesterday, the Census Bureau. <laughs> released a detailed analysis of its 2020 decennial census. And the good news is that the overall count was more or less accurate, which if you think about the challenges of administering the census in the middle of a pandemic, it's an extraordinary feat. The bad news is that the census significantly undercounted Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, Black Americans. uh, And the uh, Hispanic undercount was especially noteworthy, more than tripling uh, the the number undercounted from about 1.5% in 2020. 10 to about 5% in 2020. Now, this is not just about numbers. This has implications for all all kinds of things, from congressional districts to federal funding to where a local government is going to build a new school. But uh, it's also important to keep in mind that uh, it was also kind of predictable. Uh, The Trump administration tried to uh, add a question about citizenship to the census, even when the Supreme Court said it couldn't do that. A lot of people were concerned that this would scare away uh, participation, and it seems like those concerns were warranted.
4: Nelson? Uh, Germany's decision to rearm, uh, after the reunification of East and West Germany, coming off two great decades for their economy, it's back to history. So right now they're being kicked like a soccer ball back and forth between Moscow, who provides their energy, and Washington, who is their biggest customer and supplies their security. So they've had enough of all this. They're doubling down on their, or doubling their defense budget. And what is mo- this may be the most important development in the war in Ukraine thus far. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with a strong, united, rearmed Germany in Central Europe? It's kind of like Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it also rhymes. And this could be a very disturbing um, development in the future.
0: OK, let's go to the lightning round. Mitch, who's up
2: and who's down this week? What's up is good relations between the state treasurer, Dale Falwell, and the State Employees Association. You've already referenced the fact that the treasurer put out a release this week talking about changing federal law so that state pension funds could go after Russian assets. As soon as he did that, there was this tweet from the State Employees Association talking about how great it was and the great job he's doing. So that's interesting to see who's down State Senator Kirk Devier, a Democrat from Cumberland County, running for re election in a, a newly drawn District 19. He's got a, a primary opponent, and Governor Cooper has come out and endorsed that opponent.
0: Morgan.
3: Uh, staying on the governor, I'll tell you, he's up this week. Uh, since 2019, the governor has vetoed 43 bills in the General Assembly. Uh, his record for those at home is 43-0. and zero. This week they tried to override the most recent veto and failed. Uh, who's down this week? Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Uh, it turns out he may have committed voter fraud by registering to vote at a, at a sort of trailer in the middle of the woods that he's never stayed at. And for, for the guy, one of the guys who's been out there pushing the big lie to have actually committed voter fraud to me is very rich.
5: Self-reflected, wound. Up, I'm going with pay for congressional staff, which uh, in the uh, funding bill enacted by Congress yesterday, received the largest increase in history, about 20%. You might fairly uh, accuse me of being biased on this issue as a former congressional staffer, but this is a really important thing, not just for morale, which is suffering really badly right now, but also if we want to reduce the interest of uh, the influence of special interests and lobbyists. This is one way we do that by making sure the professionals are compensated for their work. Down easy target these days, I'm going with Congressman Madison Cawthorn, uh, who started the work, uh, (laughs) being charged with driving with a revoked license, apparently for the third time, uh, and finished the week calling Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky a thug and the Ukrainian government incredibly evil. The fact that the footage leaked at about the same time that the lawmakers were unanimously approving Speaker Moore's resolution standing with Ukraine was just, just a chef's kiss.
4: Okay. Who's up and who's down this week, Nelson? No, okay, uh, up, Coach Hubert Davis's post-game press conference last weekend after a very big win that my uh, friend here probably knows about. Uh, Davis had probably what was most inspiring, thoughtful, and faith-building post-game that I've ever heard listening to sports all these years. It's well worth the 15 minutes to check it out online. It's about basketball, but it's so so much more about life, and it is really wonderful. Down. Funding for border security in the $1.5 trillion omnibus just passed this week by Congress. Um, The U.S. Customs and Border Protection was cut $428 million with no funding or no additional funding for immigration enforcement officers and no funding to support the Remain in Mexico program.
2: Headline next week, Mitch. Lawmakers continue their in-depth study of Medicaid expansion and increased healthcare access.
3: Headline next week, my friend. Follow Nelson. March Madness is back, baby. NCAA tournament starts.
2: Who do you favor?
3: The winner. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: my people don't get to go. You so. are a
0: headline next week.
5: To be clear, I'm a Tar Heel for life, notwithstanding my current employer. Quickly. But my headline is uh, that uh, c- civilian casualties up while the war drags on. Nelson headline next week. Well, similar to that, a
4: new phase of the war in Ukraine as Russia ramps up the military tax. It's going to be flat in the country.
0: Okay, we got a roll. Great job, gents. That's it for us. Thanks yeah. for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend.
1: Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.